0: This is the Danger Close Podcast, Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Before we get going today, I want to let you know that my next novel, In the Blood, is coming out on May 17th in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook, read by Ray Porter. Coming in hot. And if you have not seen the 15 to 22nd teaser, on The Terminal List starring Chris Pratt, you can go to my website, you can go to my social channels at Jack Carr USA and check out that first glimpse of The Terminal List, which is coming to Amazon Prime Video on July 1st. My guest today, Peter Zihon, geopolitical strategist, author, and incredible guy. We talk about Ukraine, we talk about Russia, we talk about China, we talk about Iran, we talk about the future of the United States, and uh, just a fascinating guy. His books, The Accidental Superpower, The Absent Superpower, Disunited Nations, and his new one that's coming out on June 14th, The End of the World is Just the Beginning, is available for pre-order now. So now, without further ado, Peter Zihan. Well, thank you for taking the time to do this. That's That's a busy schedule. And you've been doing that for a while, up until COVID hit, anyway. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. twenty nineteen was our best year ever. We had a hundred events total. Uh, we had hundred and thirty scheduled for twenty twenty, and then of course, pfft. wow,
0: Jeez, And are those all are those uh, uh, private sector businesses, government entities? That's this the the NGOs across the board, or what do you, it, it who are you? To? It runs the gamut. I'd yeah. say
1: probably two thirds of them are either corporate or business associations.
0: Okay, and uh, are they bringing you in because they want? They really want to know about this world disorder or order or are they, are they just like, hey, we need to have a speaker. This guy looks interesting. Let's sit him down. Like, what, what do you get uh, most Well, I of?
1: used to be in the second category, uh, but uh, up through 2019, it was like, okay, here's a guy who talks about things that we don't think about. And it's a good yeah. thought experiment to see, you know, how we'd react in these circumstances. And no one really, I don't think too many people took it too seriously. And then uh, starting in 2021, people are like, holy shit, this guy actually knew what he was talking about. We have to, this is happening. We've got to have him back now.
0: (laughs) Yes. I mean, now if you read Accidental Superpower in particular, but really like anything that you've you've talked about, I mean, it's. It's eerie how many of your predictions have uh, come to fruition or have got close to. I would use the word depressing, to. but yes, <laughs> yes, that may be the better word to use, uh, especially with what we're looking at right now with Ukraine. But uh, I do want to ask you specifically about that. But before we get there, how did mm-hmm. you get into all this? And are you are you still are you in Austin right now? Are you no, traveling? I'm, I'm in, What's uh, home?
1: I'm in. I'm above Denver now. I live in Morrison. Okay. I moved here about two and a half years ago, just in time for COVID to lock everything down. So I still oh, wow. haven't really explored Denver, which is a little annoying, but <laughs> oh well. So originally, uh, I was living in DC, and um, I had had five political jobs, uh, political science major, uh, and I hated them all. So I was getting ready to go back to school, and then a what friend were you of doing friend- that you hated? Uh, Let's see. I worked for the state legislature. I worked for the state department. I worked for an NGO that does foreign affairs in DC. Uh, There were a couple other things in there. Those are the big ones though. Okay. Um, And And it
0: wasn't passionate about it.
1: Well, it's just, if you want to do international affairs in the United States, you have to be one of three people. And I was never going to be secretary of state because I couldn't imagine throwing myself into a political campaign. Uh, So once I kind of came to that conclusion, the question is, what else do I do? Uh, And I had this organic chemistry minor. So I was thinking about going back and being a lab tech. Uh, But then a friend of mine from grad school found this website called Stratfor. Mm -hmm. Uh, They said it was perfect for us Patterson eggheads. Patterson was my grad degree, uh, economic development. And so I go onto the site and I read a bunch of stuff and I go, this is really in-depth. This is really accurate. This is really interesting. Oh, wow, that's really wrong. Ah. (laughs) I found a couple glaring errors. So I wrote into the website and said, "Uh, you know, I love your stuff. Great breadth, great depth, but wow, uh, error here. It's A and not B and X and not Y. And I got a really uh, bitchy response uh, from the person who wrote the article, who happened to be the president of the company. And that turned into a job interview. And I worked there for 12 years.
0: Wow. But even before that, growing up, did you, because when you read your, your books or listen to you talk like you, it's obvious you think differently about things. You'll take a different perspective. And, uh, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, even though I've read all your stuff and obviously I've incorporated it into my novels, uh, as well, particularly true believer, that second one, but, uh, did you, do you realize it now or, or did you realize it at some point along your path? Like, Hey. I'm looking at this from a different perspective than most of the other people that I'm reading about here in these different foreign affairs journals and articles and that sort of a thing. Did you have a realization or is this just uh, the normal course of events for you?
1: It came in bits and pieces uh, my whole life. So the story that I tell in the first book is that I found my home city on a map of Iowa and I just found the thickest, darkest line. I followed that to the next thickest, darkest and eventually got out of the state and wondered what was there. But uh, I'm adopted, so I've always kind of been one step removed from everything. And I like to think that makes me a better analyst because it's a little bit more difficult for me to fall in love with my own own forecast, although it still does happen from time to time. I'm not perfect. Uh Uh, But when you're on the outside of a situation, and especially my job now, when I'm not a member of the organization that I'm speaking to, Mm -hmm. it gives me a degree of uh, intellectual honesty that is really hard to come by, in my opinion. It's not that I think other people are deliberately. Curtailing their own work, just that when you when you live within an organization, when you're part of the institution, uh, your, your your viewpoints are going to be colored by the goals and the creed of that group. And I'm not part of that, so it's very easy for me to come in from the outside with a magnifying glass and a spotlight and make people really uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. I, lo- I mean, it, it 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 challenges you, but then it's also so obvious in a lot of cases. You're like, well, yeah. Obviously, when you look at the geography and demographics and, you know, whatever else you're talking about, you're like, wow, that conclusion, why isn't anyone else talking about this? And uh, that's what's so fascinating about all your stuff is that it's unique. No one else is talking about it. Like you can go on cable news and, you know, one segment to the next are very similar, Um, but your stuff is different. And it's, and it's fascinating to me and I love it. I wish more people um, would would read all your all your stuff here rather than just you know, tweeting or retweeting something that someone else wrote that didn't look into whatever uh, topic they're tweeting about. Um, and just really think about these different situations and put the time, energy, and effort into the study of them.
1: Well, um, in the last two yeah. weeks, more of that has happened for sure. It's like, we're having a hard time keeping everything in stock.
0: Yeah, I bet. That's, oh man, that's amazing. So you go to Stratfor, you're at Stratfor for 12 years and then yep. you decide to start your own Company,
1: yeah. Off you go. To be perfectly blunt. I uh, marched out on an idle Monday in a fit of peak and never came back uh, <laughs> <laughs> without knowing what I was going to do. Uh, and I knew it was going to work when we had clients that I was supposed to be speaking to their events when they contacted me and tried to get me to do it, even though I was no longer with Stratfor. Yeah. So that's kind of how I decided back in well, what was that 2012 uh, that this was going to work. And I've uh, been doing it more and more and more and more ever since. <sighs>
0: Man, it's incredible. So, 2014, I think, is that when Accidental Superpower comes out? Yes, 2014. Um, and then I read it. I think in 2016 is when I when I found this and and read it uh, when I was doing the research for my my second novel. But uh, interesting, Ukraine. I want to jump into Ukraine because you talk sure. about it in here, uh, and that's where I focused when I was writing that second novel because that's where what I was writing about. But um, man. You must be very busy right now. Um, <laughs> because you predicted what is happening now back in 2014. And you can't you're not just saying you did. It's right here. <laughs> it's you can look, <laughs> You can look at the date uh in here and be like, "Oh, wow, it's amazing." And not only did you did you predict what was going to happen, you predicted the exact year. You say you have they have 8 years uh, to continue to field this this army um, because their population is in, in such a rapid state of decline. Uh, they have about two generations left um, as far as ethnic Russians go. Outside of Russia, Ukraine is the largest population of ethnic Russians out there. Um, but you predicted eight years. And where are we right now? We are right there Great. in that window. Um, so how did you get to that conclusion back in 2014 for everyone listening? Um, and then- What did you think in these last few months in the lead up to what's going on now?
1: Uh, Well, everything I do has two themes. De-globalization as the United States backs away from guaranteeing security that makes global trade possible. And depopulation. When the United States made global trade possible, we allowed industrialization and urbanization to spread throughout the world to places that would have never been able to pull it off before because they would either be colonies or the targets of conflicts. Uh, So by making the world safe, people started applying industry and technology to agriculture, and that allowed people to move off the farms and into the cities. So we've been in this 75-year-long urbanization phase because of those two trends. When you move from the farm into the city, you start having fewer kids because when you're on the farm, kids are free labor. And when you are in the city, kids are really, really expensive pieces of mobile furniture that take money from you. (laughs) I'm familiar. We're not stupid. We can do basic math. So we've gone in two generations from the average woman in the world having more than five kids to less than three. And different countries have moved at different speeds. But as a rule, the poorer the country was in 1945, the faster this process has happened. Hmm. The later adoptees of industrialization and globalization get to learn from everything that everyone has done before. And so in the case of China, they have gone from a rural system where the average woman had six kids to an urban system where the average woman has like 1.2 now in less than a lifetime. Uh, so they're going to be the first country, one of the first countries, to face a complete population crash. In the case of Russia, it was a little bit slower, but it started earlier with World War I. And by the time we got to the post-Cold War collapse, the birth rate fell so far that the Russians now, today, are simply not able to, arm their, or to man their army. So this is, this is their last gasp. This is their last chance if they're going to rewrite the borders. And that brings us back to geography. Because if you look at a map of Russia, the population lives in kind of this sideways V going from the European side to the Asian side, getting thinner as it goes. But there are no natural boundaries around it. No oceans, no mountains, no deserts. It's a lot of open territory that the Mongols crossed, the Germans crossed. They've been invaded 50 times. But all 50 of those times, the invader has come through one of nine gateway territories, like the Polish Gap or the Bessarabian Gap. So the Russian plan is with this last chance they have to forward to play to those gaps and plug them before they lose the military capacity to even try. Mm -hmm. So this was always their last chance. And Ukraine was never the end of it. It's actually step four, I would argue, after things like Crimea and Georgia and Nagorno-Karabakh and Kazakhstan. And it's not the end because they still have to get to Bessarabia. They still have to get to Poland. They still have to get to the Baltic. So when they're done with Ukraine, we still have six more countries.
0: So when you, I think what is life expectancy in Russia still, is it 59-ish, 58, 59?
1: We, we don't have good data anymore. Yeah. They really stopped reporting that several years ago. Uh, they started just fabricating stuff. But as of the last time that they reported data that was somewhat trustworthy, it was 59, average age of marrow mortality, you know, is now below the retirement age. Uh, and... <laughs> There's not a lot of leadership left. Uh, we're in this weird situation because of demographics that they now have a total national elite of probably only about 150 people. Wow. And so every time one of them slips in the shower and falls on some bullets or chokes on a chicken bone or whatever okay. it happens to be, it's a national crisis because these people are irreplaceable. They're, they're, they're yeah. survivors from the KGB cadre from the late Cold War. They haven't trained up any new ones. They haven't had the institutional capacity to do that. So here in the United States, our, our elite is over 2 million people. Because you can get into it from business, you can be a private uh, public servant like Biden, uh, you can do a reality TV show and get elected like Trump, uh, you can be in show business like Reagan. You know, you, there's any number of ways, and it's a very churny, regenerating system. The Russians do not have that, so this is this is their last chance in terms of demographics, in terms of economics, in terms of military, in terms of leadership. They they have to do it now.
0: Jeez, and do you think is is uh, President Putin or that? Um, that, uh, uh, that oligarchy or that elite in Russia, are they looking at it through the same lens that you are? Are they looking at, are they, are they very aware of this demographic uh, decline? And uh, is that why they're doing it? Or is that just something that you predicted that's happening, or is that at the forefront of their I think of it's something that, at a process. minimum, is in the
1: background. You know, I'm not privy to their interior mail, like apparently the CIA is now. Which, oh my God, mm. <laughs> the CIA has gotten really good. Or NSA, <laughs> whoever's is doing, it, has gotten really good at reading Putin's. Yeah. Gotten really good at reading Putin's mail. Um, I know this was under discussion before they really went into lockdown five years ago. Mm. Um, the degree to which it's driving their day-to-day decision making, I'm, I'm not privy to that. But if they're not, it's a really insane coincidence.
0: Yeah. No, if they've read you, they, oh, wow. <laughs> they should be aware of it. Uh, and for me, when I think of it through that lens, I think, okay, well, there are, this is the last gasp of a dying empire, essentially, if you're looking at two generations and you're looking at things in longer than four-year election cycles, maybe eight years for the real deep thinkers among us. So if you know that your country essentially is done in two generations and your army has a lot less time than that, um, You, it seems like you'd feel like you're backed into a corner and you have no other option, essentially, other than to invade this country that has this ethnic Russian population and that has this history that is so, so very tied to your country. Um, so it seems like, for me, that would be what is making them so dangerous
1: right now. it was it's always been inevitable there's always been a question of whether it was imminent obviously we're there now um there's something that a lot of people in the foreign policy space have been saying for years that you know we pushed them into this to a degree that by expanding nato we made them more and more unstable more and more paranoid and there's something to be said for that because the russians have always known they had to get these gaps but the only version of russian security that would have satisfied russia is if the Russians were able to write the security policies or occupy a number of countries with a combined population of twice of their own, mm. that was never a viable option. So these critics, they're right, but they're also stupid. Mm.
0: And what uh, I was going to ask you about, about NATO and about this, specifically this last year, like we have the demographics here. You predicted this all those years ago that this was going to happen. But then we have, what is it? November 10th, when we signed that strategic partnership, um, which really asserts uh, America's support of Ukraine, maybe eventually, possibly Mm -hmm. joining It's a very wishy-washy
1: document. Yeah.
0: (laughs) So, but what what does Putin think? And what does uh, does Russia think when they see that? Um, Uh, They
1: certainly don't like it. Um, I I don't think the Russians read too much into that one. I I think what really drove the Russians to do it like now, like right now, um, as opposed to eight years from eight years ago. Uh, But why February is uh, when Trump was president. I'm sure you remember all the impeachment funding games. The core issue there was that Trump tried to blackmail the current president of Ukraine, Zelensky, into getting dirt on Hunter Biden in exchange for continuing military support of Ukraine. This is, the, this he, is the
0: phone call, the infamous phone this call. This was the phone call.
1: Well, I mean, it's the, the, the Trump administration released the transcript. So it's not, mm. none of this is controversial. Whether or not that's an impeachable offense, I will leave that to Congress. But what we know for sure is that Trump tried to do the blackmail. It didn't work. And so he withheld military assistance. And so the military assistance that had been slowly building up stopped for a couple of years. And it wasn't until we get to the Biden presidency that it picked up again in large scale, and it wasn't until the Biden administration became uh, in power that some of the weapon systems that we had provided, we gave them permission to use them on that eastern front where the separatists were. That started in November of last year. Those weapons finally faced the Russians in November. That's when the buildup in Russia started. They realized that the window for them was closing very quickly because if you can operate a Nintendo Game Boy, a Javelin missile's easy. And all of a sudden, they were losing armor and and, uh, trucks to Javelins uh, a dozen a week. And they realized that if they didn't act soon, Ukraine wouldn't be nearly as easy to fall. And now we're in a situation where I think we've provided them with something like 3,000 launchers. So the Russians can still win. But the cost is going to be very, very high.
0: So then looking back, would you say that uh, that is a mistake to to arm a country next to your adversary who's going to use those weapons on that adversary? Like, is it is that a provocation? Let you me know, pick-
1: again, uh, let, me, let me play the adoption card here. <laughs> it's like there are three countries in human history that have threatened the United States. Britain, We uh, with Lend-Lease in World War II, they became our junior ally. We will never let them out of that position. Mexico, we invaded them, we took half their territory, we're best buds now. Russia, that pointed nukes at us, that still points nukes at us, that mm-hmm. never stopped pointing nukes at us. Uh, destabilizing that is kind of hardwired into the American strategic ethos, and it's yeah. hard for me to find fault with that.
0: So does that mean that
1: that, that war
0: that U.S.-Russia war, eventually is just is going to happen at some point because we've had all this time to figure this out. And this looks like what war is what a failure of diplomacy, um, in many cases. So, um, it, it's just, for me, it's like so hard to think about this in terms of we made it all the way through Cuban missile crisis, the cold war. Uh, we, we have that 30 years since the end of the cold war now without a nuclear exchange. Uh, and now we're
1: talking about it. Yeah, I'd actually argue that the Biden administration, which never wanted to get into a war with Russia in the first place, um, is actually more concerned about that and more concerned about avoiding it now because the Russians have done so badly in Ukraine. Uh-huh. We now know that if it comes to a, a, a face-to-face fight between American forces and Russian forces, that we will obliterate them. Absolutely. There, there, there's, there's no other way this could go. There, there's For a country with the lack of military expertise, equipment, and funding of Ukraine to be standing up to Russia... Are the Ukrainians overperforming? Sure, but the Russians are just, they're coming across like the Iraqis in Desert Storm. Mm -hmm. They just don't seem to know even how to drive a truck down a road without running out of gas. There's a 40-mile column of armored vehicles and tanks coming down from Belarus that has been up and stalled for over a week because it ran out of fuel and then it ran out of food and everyone just had to leave their vehicles and walk back to Belarus. That's insane. So if you put that against the U.S. Army and Air Force, oh my God.
0: Yeah. Did that surprise in that you? Scenario, did, did that surprise you?
1: Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Very much so that, that the Russians could have lost all of the lessons that they learned in Chechnya and Syria. And here they are in a real war that really means something to them strategically. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, they're just collapsing. So in a scenario of an American-Russian clash now, the Russians have two options. A humiliating retreat and nukes. And so if you are Biden, you were thinking that Ukraine was going to fall relatively quickly and you would then feel this insurgency. There's now this outside chance that Ukraine might actually succeed at fighting off the Russians. It'll be bloody. It'll be painful. It'll take years. But if the Ukrainians can stay in the game against this foe, then the foe isn't all that. Unless they launch. Unless they launch launch. nukes.
0: Yeah. So how do do you balance support for an insurgency, uh overt support, covert support either way, uh, for that kind of an insurgency protracted or or not when you're trying to balance that uh the the real threat of a country as I think they have six thousand nuclear weapons. I think we have a a couple less so with like five thousand or something
1: like that. But uh that ballpark yeah how do you
0: how do you uh if you were advising- it's not a
1: balance it's not a balance it's you give the Ukrainians everything they possibly can use in a guerrilla format. Because as long as that is going on, as long as that war is happening, as long as the Russians are locked down, they can't move to the next step. And the Russians are highly unlikely to use nukes against Ukraine because you want to talk about humiliation—you uh, know, nuking your fellow Serbs who stood up to you without them even having a military. I don't think the Russians would would consider that an option because it, honestly, it wouldn't achieve anything for them. So, from the Biden administration's point of view, from the Germans, from the Swedes, from everybody in the West point of view. This is how we prevent World War Three. We make sure that Russia
0: dies in Ukraine. And you're not, so, so you're not overly concerned that they're going to do that escalate to deescalate thing, take out maybe a smaller city, a smaller town, just to show, hey, we have tactical nuclear weapons in place. We can use them and, uh, and we will do this more unless this government folds and allows us to, to move in.
1: Can't rule it out because Putin has really isolated himself. He's not taking it. He's not, as, he's not as bad as Obama, he's not as bad as Chairman Xi in China, but he's like a close third in terms of how isolated he is now from everyone in terms of figuring things out. And so it's entirely possible that he has a, a bit of a snap and decides to throw a nuke into the fray. If he does that, Sweden and Poland will have nukes before the end of the year, as will a number of other countries. That is a way to guarantee the death of Russia from a strategic bleed out.
0: Interesting. So say that say they do launch a nuke and say that weather because they would probably look at the weather uh, and make sure that that wind is not blowing back towards Russia uh, it seems reasonable and see <laughs> it blows the other way over, let's say, a uh, a NATO uh, member country.
1: yeah, um, it's um nowadays. I can't think of a better way to guarantee that NATO actually is worthy of the name. Uh, but it would come at the cost of a number of NATO countries. Let's throw Germany into that list too immediately starting a nuclear weapons program. Any country that has a nuclear power plant can build a nuke in under a year. Uh, it's a non-prolifer- non-proliferation pledge issue as to why mm-hmm. they've not, but if a nuke is used on your Eastern, on your, yeah, eastern frontier, you can guarantee that a number of countries are gonna join that club very, very quickly.
0: Chase, and if they, so let's say they, let's say that a nuke does go off, whether it's a tactical nuke or an old suitcase nuke that they get going again and bring it in and, and, and that thing goes off. Um, now what do what would the what do you think that the United States would then do?
1: <laughs> I mean, we're we're piling ifs upon ifs here, yeah. but we would definitely return the nuclear fleet to Europe. And would we respond in
0: kind in defense of let's say a NATO? Ukraine country that is not a NATO over?
1: ally, so I can't imagine that we would respond in kind, but we would make it very clear that any hope that the Russians now thought that they had of securing those gateways is now completely off the table. And now it's just a question of how. Russia fades from the world as opposed oh, to winning. Yeah, so so it's inevitable that there that Russia
0: is on the on the decline and heading out some way it's just the, it's just the way. Yeah,
1: American policy for the last 30 years has been about buying time when it comes mm. to Russia. It's like we we know we're going to outlive them. We know that the Russians are going to lose control of the Russian Federation probably in the 2050s or 2060s. And so as long as we can prevent a Russian lash out from causing us real damage, you know, we're good. Uh We're now seeing a lash out. Now, it's not against the West's interests directly, but it has provided an opportunity for Russia to be stuck in a mess of its own making that very few countries that matter are on the other side of. Uh, Of course, the biggest country that's on the other side of this is China. And I would argue, just because of a layout of the infrastructure and the resources in Russia, that All the sanctions on Russia are actually going to cause as much damage to the Chinese as to the Russians. Mm -hmm. Uh, They don't have the capacity to continue their own oil and natural gas production without Western techs. Uh, The infrastructure that supplies the energy to China is already maxed out. And anything that goes west, even if it can get on a boat, even if it can find uh, indemnification insurance, which they can't, so nothing's getting picked up, but let's assume they could. Let's assume they can get by the the Danes and get by the Turks and get through Uh, the Suez Canal and burn up a third of their crew going all the way around the world. I mean, it's like these are shallow water ports. They can't take super tankers. So just the, the sheer scale of the stuff that is just completely going offline is huge. And the biggest loser from all of that is China. China absolutely needs those imports. And now they're limited to the infrastructure that connects the two states directly that come from really complex fields that the Russians can't operate themselves. So the Chinese, from a strategic point of view, want to keep Russia in the game, but economically, this is turning into a disaster for
0: them. Interesting. I do want to ask you about uh, about China, but before I do that, um, is there a, is there a, a limit to the amount of U.S. support that you would uh, you think is a good idea for the Ukrainians, like those jets or intelligence yeah. or you know javelins and Stingers and everything else? Is there, a, is there a point that we shouldn't go past? Or is it like, hey, we're going to fund this insurgency. We need to do everything we can to continue to support this government in its fight against Russia, um, barring definitely line. boots on yeah. the ground.
1: Uh, anything that requires a physical infrastructure in Ukraine to support the American assistance, that's off the table. Mm. So that's no bases. That's no planes. That's no helicopters. Nothing like that. But intelligence flows freely. The weapons are man-portable. Uh, the ammo is definitely man-portable, uh, and then the refugee assistance on the other side is huge. And you know, we think of Europe as being really paranoid about refugees because they are. Um, there are 1.2 million poles. I'm sorry, 1.2 million Ukrainians in Poland right now you know, that is greater than the two-year surge into Germany a few years ago. And that's just one country. That's only half of them. Europeans really have stepped up. Uh, And because of that, uh, everyone in Europe now has a vested interest in working hand-in-hand with the Americans and getting the Ukrainians anything that they need that does not require a physical infrastructure base. As soon as you provide something where it's a military target that's Mm -hmm. fixed, the Russians will hit it. Mm. that's how you get escalation. So you have to avoid that specific circumstance.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So gosh, from the Russian point of view, then there, you think they were surprised? You think that the the leadership was surprised that they didn't take that country in two to three days? Kind of like our leadership. Everyone
1: is surprised. I think the Ukrainians are surprised.
0: Yeah. Well, how much does leadership play into that? Because it seems like if. Uh, if Zelensky's
1: the, the man. I mean, oh my God. <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean, imagine if he'd left the country or imagine if he'd been assassinated first and that was the trigger for the Russian army to invade. This,
1: this guy has gone from Charlie Chaplin to Winston Churchill in three weeks. It's shocking. Mm-hmm. Uh, leadership is definitely a part of it. There's no way that you can maintain a meaningful guerrilla resistance of this scale without some moral support. There's going to be a a question for Zelensky coming up, probably in the not too distant future, whether he uh, goes into exile or not, or tries to lead from a country that is increasingly occupied. Uh, We're not there yet. Uh, I have very little doubt that we will get there within a, a month or two.
0: Oh, interesting. And it, and it, I'm very curious as to what lessons the Russians have taken by watching us in, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 20 years, what lessons Rumble. they took from their own 79 <laughs> to 89 excursion into <laughs> Afghanistan. Um, because, uh, what, what is it? September of 1986 is when the first three hind helicopters were shot down with us supplied stinger missiles. And then three years later and off they go. Um, and up until that point, they enjoyed, uh, complete dominance of the sky anyway. And then that, those stingers changed the game. And we taught Mujahideen how to use them with uh, with very little, little training. And then look at us in Iraq and Afghanistan and the EFPs coming into Iraq from Iran and really a tactical level weapon gaining strategic level importance because of what we're seeing on the news and how that thing can just defeat a most technologically advanced armor in the world. So, I mean, I would think that the Russians would be looking at those things and say, oh... Well, uh, guess, guess, who yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. guess who else can use EFP? Yeah, exactly. Guess who else can use EFPs? Well, the Ukrainians—they can make them at home. And now, look at—they have these javelins coming in, and look what—they have these stingers coming in, and look at—they seem to have an endless supply of ammunition, um, and intelligence. So
1: yeah, that's let, a let me put fight. a couple of points on there because I think it's even bigger than you're suggesting. So uh, any ground occupation is going to have to ultimately go house to house and require a huge amount of vehicles. So the javelins are far more important to the tactical picture here uh, than the stingers are, uh, and. With the numbers that are being put in there because they're cheaper to produce than even the, the, the Stingers, uh, this is just going to be an ongoing bleed uh, for as long as this lasts. Uh, on the Stingers, they have very few Stingers so far. Uh, the Stingers they had were ones that the uh, the Baltic Republics provided to them because you know the Baltic defense plan has never been to meet the Russians' man-to-man. This is a, three countries that only have like six and a half million people. They knew they wouldn't have a chance. So for them, it was all guerrilla all the time. That was the defense plan. You, when you go into the National Guard equivalent in Latvia, you don't train to operate a tank. You train to duck and cover and hide in the forest and snipe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Finns, of course, have been giddy about assisting them in that. Because they're the world's leaders. Anyway, so that was the sole supply of stingers that they had before the war broke out. American stingers are only now getting to the country. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to see three orders of magnitude increase in that weapon system over the course of the next month. So if the Russians think they're having problems with air power now, it is nothing compared to what's just around the corner. Interesting.
0: And what have the Russians been doing up in uh, in the Arctic for the last? decade or so. It seems like they've been increasing their presence up there. Those Arctic shipping lanes seem to be in yeah, their Yeah, they're, they're trying
1: to hold on. Uh, the Soviet period made a bunch of cities, like 25 of them, upright on the Arctic Circle. They can only be supported by air, and it was mostly for defense purposes. There's, there's a couple like Norilsk that have some good resources, but mostly they were military outposts. And so when the Cold War ended, these cities withered on the vine and most of them just died. Mm. Uh, the Russians and now have been trying to rebuild that position a little bit, but they don't have the resources that the Soviet Union had. So I don't think it's going to be nearly as significant. Uh, now, the, uh, the talk of a North Pole shipping route from Asia to Europe used to be something that I kind of, you know, I had to talk it down when people would bring it up because mm. no one's really going to rely on the Russians for emergency support when something mm. goes wrong. And now, and now it's dead. Interesting. Um, Yeah. Until we get to the point that the North Pole is ice-free in the winter, any talk of a meaningful maritime shipping route uh, through the Arctic is going nowhere. Because it would be dependent upon the Russians providing search and rescue. And I don't think anyone trusts them for that anymore.
0: (laughs) Especially not after their performance over the last couple of weeks. Um, Oh man So when we talk about Then we look at China And we look at that alliance That uh, That uh, has been developing Over the last uh, You know A couple decades And we look at uh, uh, Taiwan People are are Obviously uh, You know Focused on On China Taiwan Relationship East China Sea South China Sea Philippine Sea uh, How it's very unnatural For Taiwan To be not a part of China Uh, To the Chinese Kind of like it was Unnatural for Ukraine Not to be a part of Russia Historically
1: speaking It is the norm But yes That's what the CCP says
0: Yeah And so what what lessons are they taking from, uh, from the last couple months?
1: Well, like everybody else, they thought Ukraine was going to fold quickly when this happened. And so every, they've been as shocked as everybody else. So number one, from a military point of view, they're now terrified of Taiwan. Mm. Uh, Taiwan is far more sophisticated. They've got a far better uh, military system. They've got far better training and guerrilla tactics than the Ukrainians have. And of course, they're on the other side of a chunk of water. So it is... Very, very easy to imagine that the war for Taiwan that they thought would be over in a couple of days now would drag on and give other countries a chance to intervene. Second, they look at what's happening with the resources and the food shipments out of the former Soviet Union, and they're worried now that they are going to have a famine, and they are right. Uh, We're going to see significant breakdowns in harvest capacity and growth capacity in agriculture globally this year. We were facing a fertilizer shortage before Mm. the Ukrainians and the Belarusians, I'm sorry, before the Russians and the Belarusians moved into Ukraine. And so now we're seeing that the capacity of Russia, the world's largest fertilizer exporter to export Mm. has been reduced almost to zero. Uh, China being one of the world's most food insecure nations is obviously shaking in their boots, and they should, and there's not a damn thing they can do about it now. Uh, Third, what the West has pulled off with these sanctions, (sighs) Russia is now under a greater sanction than all other countries in the post-war period that have been under sanctions combined, and it happened in a week. China has always assumed that if they go into Taiwan, the war will be over in a few days, and the rest of the world will just have to live with it. They know now that that is a dream. And while cutting China out of various economic norms would have a bigger economic impact than what we're doing with Russia, it would have no impact on food and energy, which are the two things we're worried about right now. In fact, it would make food and energy cheaper because the Chinese are a huge importer of both. So the Chinese need to go through a complete ground-up reassessment. And I don't think they can. Because remember when I said that Putin was the third most isolated world leader, Mm. Xi's by far and away number one. (laughs) Uh, He has literally shot the messenger so many times that no one will bring him bad news. Remember last May when the power outages started? One third of the country was subject to rolling black brownouts for months? Mm. Best guess is that Xi didn't find out about it until
0: September.
1: Wow. So we now have a cult of personality that is stricter than anything that Mao did. In the world's second largest economy and we if you know where to look we're seeing breakdowns across the system in power in food production in sanitation in health in manufacturing china is crumbling before our eyes but we're all a little focused on ukraine right now for obvious reasons
0: mm-hmm. oh man so does, does china realize this even though no one's bringing bad news because they don't want to get their uh, their head chopped off um do they, what do they, what do you see demog- as far as demographics goes in China? And then does China, do they look at themselves as uh, as, it, as inevitably becoming the world's number one superpower? They just have to wait or, uh, and they I can think hold that- off on Taiwan for, it doesn't matter, 100 years, 50 years, 25 years. It'll eventually, we'll get it back eventually. It just has to oh. be the right time. Or do they, they need it? Or do they well, let me give you the punchline. To- China is yeah.
1: not going to exist as a unified nation state ten years. Okay. Um, the one-child policy is now forty years behind us, which means that the Chinese are now running out of thirty and thirty-five year olds. Uh, they, as of January of 2020, they were the fastest aging society in human history. Uh, and we knew, with that data, that there'd be less than half as many Chinese alive in 2100 as there are now. Uh, since then, the Chinese have started to let out drips and drabs of data from their 20. 20 census. They do it every 10 years just like us. And they're now guessing that they overcounted about their population by perhaps as many as 100 million people, all of whom would have been birthed since one child, so age 40 and under. Huh. If that's true, and they haven't released the whole thing, so we don't know for sure, but if that is true, then uh, there'll be half as many Chinese alive in 2050 as there are today. So Chinese labor costs have already increased by a factor of 4 in the last 22 years. That's the fastest in human history, including in wartime. So this this doesn't work anymore. It's just a question of how it crashes. And for the Chinese, there is not a gateway equivalent like there is for the Russians. They are perfectly capable of just imploding and going away. Uh, Now, there's any number of ways how that implosion could go, but I'm really not too worried about the Chinese launching a war. Uh, because even if they conquered Taiwan in a day, they're still dependent upon the rest of the world for all their industrial inputs. So any country that was angry with them, let's you know, lift off a few. Uh, the US, Japan, Taiwan, the Philippines, Vietnam, Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, India, you put two destroyers in the Indian Ocean Basin and you cut the energy line. And that's it. Three months later, uh, the lights go out in China. Three months after that, the truck, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. Three months later, the trucks stop running. Three months after that, the lights go out. And a year later, they've got 500 million dead Chinese due to famine. Uh, the Chinese are utterly dependent upon globalization. And so whenever the United States says they're not interested in it anymore, the Chinese get really terrified, and they should. Interesting.
0: Oh man! And then, so are they in a similar situation then with uh, as as Russia is as far as manning uh, a military is that? Uh...
1: Uh, technically, yes, it's a similar age scoop out, um, but there's no one that they can send the troops in a, in a land war against. Um, the Russians made it very clear in the '90s that if you come north of the border, we're just going to hmm. nuke you because we can't meet you soldier to soldier. When to India because the Himalayas are in the way, hmm. that just leaves Vietnam. And um, the last time they invaded Vietnam, it was in 1979, and the the Vietnamese treated them with the same welcome that they treated us. Uh, And the Chinese know that that's not worth it. So that's it. That's all their land border. I mean, I guess I could go into North Korea. That's another one of the, the, what does the winner get questions? Yeah.
0: So when you look at all this, then look at things holistically and you see Ukraine, you see China, you see that that alliance, however strong it it may or may not be, um, and see the United States and look at look at our demographics, and, you, and then you project out long term um, what's going to happen in the next in the next fifty years. How are how are things looking for uh, for the next generation
1: in the United States? The United States, we've got some pressures uh, with the retirement of the baby boomers. We're losing our single largest worker cadre and our greatest concentration of skilled labor. That was always going to happen when they retired, and here we are. Uh, half of the baby boomers will have been will have retired by the end of this year, so we are we're at the peak right now. Uh, Gen X was always going to be a smaller generation, and they also have a lower labor participation rate because they're far less likely to be two-income families. Gen X tends to value their time and their family time uh, just as much as their money, as opposed to the Boomers who went for the money over the time. Mm-hmm. So Boomers have a high divorce rate. Xers have a very low divorce rate. Interesting.
0: Um, Never thought of it in those terms before. That, That's fascinating.
1: Yeah, now, now that Xers are you know going to be the the old guys, uh, we're finally seeing labor appreciation, which is really comfortable for the Xers, but it's really bad for everybody else because there's just not enough. Um, the Millennials whether it's because they took an extended adolescence or because they entered the workforce in the 2000s and got screwed by the financial crisis, Mm. have lost three to five years of work experience. And they'll always be behind. And then Gen Z is just as small as Gen X. So we, we know what the labor situation is for the next 20 years. It's going to be tight. We have to wait for the 2040s for this to loosen up. This is just how things are. But it's American demographics, goes boomers, Xers, millennials, Zoomers. Interesting. Everyone else in the world goes boomers, Xers, millennials, Zoomers. Wow. The one thing that our baby boomers did differently is they had kids. That didn't happen in most places. So we're looking at the end of economics as we understand it today, whether you call it your favorite economic theory is socialism or fascism or communism or capitalism. Those don't work in a world where the population's in collapse. We've got to figure out something new. But in the United States and in Mexico, the two healthiest demographies in the world, we have bare minimum another 35 years. So we got to watch everyone else wrestle with this Mm. while we continue with business as normal and just kind of see if there are any tricks that we can pick up along the way. Interesting. And
0: what about our dependence on China just for stuff? Like probably what I'm talking to you on right here, Uh, maybe pharmaceuticals, tech all that sort of a thing. Um, how does that impact if China if China implodes, or it? Uh, how, how does that impact us, or we just we just adapt? Where it's like, hey, we can do that stuff here. We just have chosen not to over the past 50 years. For
1: most things, I think we're going to be fine. Uh, The United States is the least integrated major power in the global economy uh, in the world. And that's by design. Uh, We we created globalization to build an alliance to fight the Soviets. So if we had been the dominant economic power in that, it wouldn't have worked. Mm. Uh, So we basically informally agreed to run massive trade deficits. And globalization has been successful in integrating two economic sectors from the United States and the wider world. Only two. One of those is agriculture because our farmers and ranchers are just so ridiculously productive that they have to sell outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. So based on whether you're a farmer or rancher, you're in pork or corn or whatever, there's going to be some, some adjustments that are going to be uncomfortable. Uh, Manufacturing is the second one specifically tech manufacturing. What makes tech manufacturing work is having access to multiple different pools of labor at different schools, sorry, different skill levels and different price levels so that every specific part can be made in a place with maximum competitive advantage. And then you shuttle it to the next spot, Mm -hmm. to add the next piece. And in that, China has been great. China is not exactly a one-stop shop, but you've got technocracies right across the water in Japan, Korea, and Taiwan. You've got countries that are poorer like Vietnam and Indonesia nearby. And so you can have a great system and tech has outsourced their entire manufacturing base to this part of the world. That's where we're going to feel it Hmm. because that's going to break. You don't rebuild that overnight. And the Mexicans are wonderful, but in Northern Mexico, there's only 30 million Mexican. So there's a limit to how much of this that we can build before we can figure out a new, more automated way of doing the construction. Uh, So between now and 2030, that's going to probably be the biggest pinch Mm. in our system is just computing and cell phones and electronics, fax machines, servers, all that kind of stuff. That all has to come back. It is all coming back. But you have to unwind 40 years of globalization in a very short period of time. We need to, bare minimum, double our industrial plant in the next five years. And while that will end us in a much better place than where we are now, the road from there is going to be bumpy and there's going to be a lot of inflation because, you know, this stuff isn't free to build. Mm.
0: Yeah. Man, it's, it's so wild. And what, what, it, so before I let you go and be very cognizant of your time here, but I do want to ask you how the national debt plays in to, uh, to all of this, because it's something that's, I think it's confusing to a lot of people. Uh, not if you're just balancing your checkbook every day, cause you're like, why can't, what is, so how does that impact all of this, the <laughs> globalization side of the house? And how do we keep running? Uh, if we keep, if our elected representatives just keep building on this, this bill for future generations, like how does that impact everything that's going on?
1: Well, let me start by saying I consider myself a physical conservative, and there are not a lot of people in Congress or the White House in the last 30 years that I have a whole lot of respect for. Mm-hmm. So uh, let, let me put that to the side. Um, it really doesn't matter. Really? Uh, the United States is the global currency. We're the only global currency. What's going on in Russia right now has sent a huge flight of capital from the entire world to the US. Mm. It is becoming clearer and clearer and clearer that the more you break down the globalization, the better the US does in terms of financial centrality. And in that environment, even if we're using sanctions to cut off the world's 11th largest economy, people are still putting their money here because there is no other option. Mm. There is no competitor to the US dollar. Bitcoin is laughably, laughably incapable of providing any sort of sustenance for this system. Uh, the Chinese yuan is locked off from the world because whenever they open it, people get their money out of China as soon as they can and get into dollars. Huh. Uh, the euro is a regional currency. And now that it's under threat from the Russians, they're seeing capital flight. There's just no, nothing else in play. And when that is the case, the checkbook doesn't really matter. Hmm. You have to worry about checkbook logistics when you're a normal currency and the balance of payments is critical, but the United States is not in that situation. We decide what the money supply is, and we are the world's single largest store of value by a large margin, and we are the largest trade currency by a large margin. As long as that is the case, the United States has the uh, exorbitant privilege, if you wanna use the technical term, uh, of printing currency in nearly any volume it wants to. In addition, we can we kind of get like an $800 billion a year freebie in that. Because as long as we're expanding at roughly 3% growth, which is what we've been doing for decades, mm-hmm. and you, if you print, or if you have a, a budget deficit of $800 billion, that comes out to about 3% of GDP. So the relative debt load doesn't increase. Um, Interesting. Think of what's happened under Biden and Trump. You know, The two biggest deficits we've ever had, 20% of GDP at one point, and the dollar still up. Hmm.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's kind of hard to wrap your, your mind around, um, but you seem very hopeful for the future. And I wasn't sure. Yeah, a,
1: there, there are things I've got huge concerns about, but they're not kind of the structural concerns that are threatening a lot of countries around the
0: world. Uh, so, so is there something that, that, keeps you, and that keeps you up at night or uh, are things that, that, you, uh, that you think about more than, than other things when you think about the future?
1: Sure. Well, let me give you two. Uh, One's a security. One is more economic. The security one, uh, it involves Mexico. Americans really like their cocaine. And Mm. a lot of Americans have discovered that they really like meth. And that has provided the Mexican cartels with all the money that they will ever need. And so Mexico, our largest trading partner, our our second largest demographic partner uh, is suffering under that. Mm. And the evolution of the cartel wars in Mexico is threatening to come north now. There's a new group called Jalisco New Generation, ultra-violent, much worse than the Guadalajara Cartel, much worse than the Sinaloa, and they are now contesting other cartels for control of each and every plaza that crosses into the United States. And if they just get one, they're going to start coming north. Uh, That worries me. Uh, It's not going to destroy us, but that's a big concern. Uh, The thing that keeps me up at night uh, is – Between what's going on in China and Russia right now, the world is in a huge fertilizer shortage and it's not going to get better. And put this a little different way. In the 1990s and the 2000s, part of why global growth was so strong is that all of the supplies, the energy, the industrial inputs, the food that the Soviet system built in excess and distributed through its empire got dumped on, on the global market. And it was dumped on the global market for the next 25 years. That has kept inflation low. That has allowed any number of economic trends that we think of as normal to manifest. This is German manufacturing, Chinese manufacturing. This is the digital revolution. This is the energy transition. None of this would have ever been possible without FSU materials. It's also Brazilian and South Asian agriculture. Removing the Russians from the system, removing Chinese fertilizer from the system, breaking down globalization, we now have to go through those good years where we had all this stuff to build up all this capacity. We now have to do that in reverse. Mm. And if nothing goes wrong, and if we all trust each other and no one hoards, we're still going to lose a billion people because we have to go back at a minimum to the food situation that we had in 1992 when we had a much smaller population globally. Okay. Interesting. A better bet is that we're going to regress a lot more than that. Okay. So we're looking at a very different caloric situation globally, mm-hmm. and you're looking at half the population of the world having to figure out how to get by with substantially less. That's my big worry. Interesting. Interesting. And I got just a
0: couple more minutes, but I do want to ask you about, uh, Iran, when we look at the, at, at the middle East and it's obviously since 1970, well before 1979, but you know, 1979, obviously a, a turning point, uh, in our relationship, um, uh, What what does their future look like over there? Population-based, geography-wise, nuclear-wise?
1: It's a highland massive with a lot of mountains, which means it's pretty much invasion-proof. They're not like the Chinese or the Russians. They're not going to cease to exist. Uh, They do have a bunch of problems. Their primary income source is oil. Oil can only be shipped out in a globalized world. Globalization is going away. And if you're a foreign power and you're not the United States, who doesn't care about this anymore, getting to the Persian Gulf, who do you deal with? The Iranians who are prickly, who might be able to give you two or three million barrels after a decade of investment, or the Saudis who can give you seven million barrels today. So Iran will always be a problem for any country that tries to enter the Persian Gulf. Saudi will always be their preferred partner, or Kuwait, or the UAE, or Qatar. Um, So the Iranians have thought the last 50 years as an aberration with the american or the last 40 years anyway the americans don't like them they don't like the americans and that's the reason why their oil industry has failed no their oil industry has failed because there's just so many other better options <laughs> and if you remove the americans from the equation they can't get stuff out of, a port of out of the strait of hormuz so the future of iran is an iran without an oil sector hmm.
0: do they have and territorial ambitions to, i'm sorry do they have territorial ambitions
1: they, they, yeah, they do, but it doesn't matter. They don't have the capacity to act on it. Interesting. So if they lose the oil income, all of these little groups that they've sponsored from Lebanon to Yemen, you know, they, they just shrivel and die because they won't function without the economic support and Iran won't have the money to do it. Mm-hmm. So Iran is going to go through one of its occasional internal navel-gazing collapses where they basically withdraw into themselves. Anyone who comes and tries to knock on the door will obviously get their hand chopped off. Mm-hmm. Uh but they're not going to be a major problem outside of their own zone. Uh, that does not mean that the Middle East will become a calmer, better place. <laughs> no, <laughs> there is, the Middle East is far is very, very capable of generating a huge amount of chaos, even if the Iranians are not present. Uh, but Iran is going to fade from thought as a significant threat to outside powers until such time as the global system turns into a different form, and you're going to have to wait a few decades for that. Wow. Well,
0: I know I got to let you go because you got to jump on your next thing, but books, absolutely amazing. Thank you so much for uh, putting all this work and thought uh, into everything that you do, whether it's the books or uh, a talk on you can get see a lot of those on YouTube. Um, but, uh, thank you so much for, uh, (laughs) for all of this, all this work that you do. Uh, and then you have another book that's coming out June 14th. And then it has the longest title, I think of, uh, any book (laughs) on my shelf. And it's, uh, I luckily I got, I got an early copy. So thank you so much for, for sending that. Um, but the end of the world is just the beginning. And, uh, so what, what are you exploring in that one? Uh, just in the couple minutes that we have, that we have left.
1: Sure. The three books that are out so far are The Rise and Fall of Nations, The the Future of the Human Condition. This new one is getting a lot more personal. It talks about all the economic sectors, the future of energy, the future of agriculture, the future of manufacturing, how we got to where we are and what it is going to look like on the backside of a global breakdown in trade.
0: Wow, you got that down. Awesome, yeah, the pitch down. Um, but uh, I want to encourage everybody to read, get the new book, pre-order it right now. Read these other books before you just start tweeting, or before you just start retweeting things that other people tweet <laughs> who who also have not read these books, or at least taken a breath and and studied the situation as in depth as they possibly can. So, uh, uh, so highly recommend these. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I know you have to be so busy, especially right now. And uh, man, I just, uh, I just so glad you're out there.
1: Uh, It's been a pleasure, Jack. We'll definitely do this again. Sounds great. Sounds great. You take care, have a great one.
0: Just wanted to say a quick thank you to Navy Federal Credit Union for taking such good care of me and my family over the years. I've been a member since 1996, right there. There's my Navy Federal Credit Union Q card right there. So yeah, been a member for quite some time now. They've done a fantastic job with me and my family. And I know that investing and saving can be stressful and Navy Federal Credit Union takes that stress away. A lot of educational materials and they can help you get on track in 2022 when it comes to saving and investing. So go to navyfederal.org backslash save and invest. Trust me, you won't regret it. All right. Let's talk about 10,000.cc. So 10,000, awesome company. If you have tried their interval shorts or their tactical shorts, which these are right here, you know that you are not going back to anything else. These things are awesome. And uh, I got a pair of pants from them recently too. And man, amazing. Amazing. Um, I've worn a lot of shorts over the years, obviously being a west coast seal at team five when i started out so that was kind of the, the thing um but i have worn a lot of shorts and these ones hands down the best i mean that's just how it goes uh they were tested by over 50 special operations members in their testing phase. So it makes sense that they're awesome, but uh, definitely try these out. Go to 10,000.cc, follow them on Instagram. Same thing, 10,000.cc on Instagram, Uh, but go to the website, check it out. Super easy to order. Uh, There's not crazy amount of different options. So, uh, and then there's packages on there as well. I mean, they just do a fantastic job in all that they do. Free shipping, free returns. Uh, Go to 10,000.cc dot CC slash danger close 15 to receive 15% off your purchase. That's 10,000 dot CC slash danger close 15. So definitely do that. Get your 15% off. Uh, I definitely recommend both the interval short and the tactical short. They are both awesome. And uh, I'll be wearing these pants a lot more here. I actually think I'm going to go running in these. Um, cause I'm getting back after it. It is that time. Uh, it's been a while since I've gotten out there and gotten after it and doing anything other than skiing or hiking or playing with the kids or hunting or whatever. Um, but, uh, time to get back on it. So, uh, running in the mornings, doing some burpees, um, just that's about it for now because, uh, I still have to write books, still have to do screenplays, do all that sort of thing. So, uh, but getting out there to clear my head in the mornings in the tactical short, Yes. So once again, 10,000.cc slash Danger Close, 15 for 15% off your order. You will not regret it. Welcome to the gear highlight portion of the Danger Close podcast. I want to talk about a couple sharp objects today that mean a lot to me. The first one right here, Half face blades. So, my friend Andrew Arabito, former SEAL, been on the podcast before. His knives are featured prominently in each and every one of my novels. But uh, this right here is a half face blade and it's a gift from Tony. And, Tony, thank you so much for sending this. I uh, can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Uh, I have a lot of knives in my collection, a lot of half face blade knives in my collection, but this one is so unique. It is beautiful. And I absolutely love this giraffe bone right here. And it is stunning. So thank you so much for sending this and uh, Beto, thank you so much for making it uh, absolutely incredible. All right. What else do I have here? Winkler knives. So if you have seen the trailer or not a trailer, it's called a first glimpse or a first look at The Terminalist starring Chris Pratt. And if you haven't seen it, you can go to my Instagram. It's right there, Jack Carr USA. You can go to my website, hit the blog section. But the first glimpse is a uh, 15 to 20 second uh, video that uh, highlights the upcoming Terminalist series starring Chris Pratt that comes out July 1st on Prime Video. But if you've seen it, you will know that it ends with a really, really cool shot. And that shot is of a Winkler R&D hawk which is what's in this box right here. So Daniel Winkler, Karen Shook out at Winkler Knives. Thank you guys so much. This is awesome. Look at that. Bam. (sighs) Front spike right there. This one here is walnut. I have walnut and maple, but uh, this right here, look at that thing. That is just beautiful. Incredible. If you've read the novels, you know that James Reese uses these in each and every one of the novels. And if you've seen that first glimpse at the terminal list, that 15 to 20 second video, then uh, (laughs) you'll also be aware that Chris Pratt uses this as Navy SEAL sniper James Reese in the terminal list series. So that is very cool, incredible, absolutely love this. Daniel Winkler, Karen, thank you guys so much for all your support over the years. And uh, anybody else out there watching, if you want one of these, I would order now because uh, once that series hits, Make it a little harder to come by. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad Original, presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Peter Zihon, go to Zion.com, and that is Z-E-I-H-A-N.com. Official jackcar.com is my website at Jack Car USA on the social channels, Jack Car USA for the merch. And in the blood, my next novel is coming in hot on May 17th in hardcover. Book and audiobook read by Ray Porter. If you like the conversation on this podcast, be sure to leave a five star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for tuning in. Take care out there. Be safe. Stay strong. Keep fighting.
1: In case you missed it on a recent episode of Danger Close, an Ironclad original. Jack Carr sat down with former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard. Set aside all the labels, mm. you know, oh, well, because I've been getting asked this a lot, like, well, are you left or are you right? Are you progressive? Are you conservative? What are box you... do you fit in? Which exactly, box do you check? Completely.
0: Are you an enemy or right, right. an ally? How,
1: Like, what filter should I use when I'm looking at you? And, like, I've always been an independent-minded person, mm. always. Be sure to check out the full interview wherever you get your podcasts.